All right, good evening, folks. If you'll take your copy of God's Word and flip open to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. I'm so excited about this. God's word is precious, folks. We've just finished the Olympic season. It is very sad to me to think that we have to wait four more years to to watch the Summer Olympics. My daughter is convinced that if we just turn on the TV, the Winter Olympics will be there because we've told her the Winter Olympics come after the Summer Olympics, so she keeps asking. Um, I... I told her I said cares, but there's football. Yeah, there's football. Well, speaking of Olympics, most folks know the story of Scotland's most famous Olympian, Eric Liddell. Is it Liddell or Little? I think it's Liddell, right? Eric Liddell. Eric Liddell grew up the son of Christian missionaries to, to China. And in the 1920s, he returned to Scotland as a teenager. And when he returned from China, it was quickly found out that he could run. He was extremely fast. And it turns out that once discovered, Eric Liddell went on to become the most successful runner to ever come out of Scotland. Well, the 1924 Olympics were approaching, and Liddell was the hands-down gold medal favorite and the hopeful for all of Great Britain in the 100-meter dash. He was favored to win, but there was a problem that quickly emerged. You probably know the story, but the 100-meter finals were scheduled on a Sunday. And Liddell uh, was personally convicted that he should not run on the Lord's Day. And so to the great dismay of all of the nations, except for maybe his competitors, he dropped out of the race and refused to run. His, the newspapers from his country and all over Great Britain called him a traitor. The Prince of Wales personally contacted him and put intense pressure on him to compromise his principles. But Liddell wouldn't budge because he was committed to the honor of his Lord above the honor of his country and even above the honor of his own name. It turns out that there is a compromise that could be reached. The 400 400 meter dash, which is a totally different event, was scheduled um, to where all of the heats would, would be held on days other than Sunday. And so even though Liddell had not trained for that distance at all, he entered the race. Now, the reason I remind you of this story tonight, you're probably familiar with it, is that during the 400 meters, he ran with a small piece of paper in his hand. It was crumbled up. And that piece of paper had a verse from our text tonight. And I think that that verse, the verse that Liddell ran with, is the key to understanding the whole chapter. That verse was verse 30. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. And it says, For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me, I will, will be lightly esteemed. Liddell made it clear that he was more concerned with honoring God above all other things, including himself. And it turned out that God honored him in even a worldly fashion. Liddell went on to win the 400 meter gold and shattered the existing world record. 
But shortly after his hero's return to Scotland, he decided to return to China to be a missionary. When he left just several months later, the crowd that gathered to see him off was so large that they had to turn away several thousand people who couldn't even gather near to wave goodbye. Eric returned to China and honored the Lord on the mission field for 20 years before he died in a Japanese concentration camp right before the end of the war. One of his biographers wrote of his death, Liddell had honored God behind the scenes and on the international stage, and God honored his name before angels and men. Liddell lived his life with a singular focus of honoring God above all else because he was convinced that 1 Samuel 2 was true. For all who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me, will be lightly esteemed. Now it's really easy for us East Tennessee Southern Baptist Christian folk to listen to the story of Eric Liddell and how he won the gold and just smile and be like, yeah, our guy, he won, he got it. Yes, God honors those who honor him. It's easy for us to apply 1 Samuel 2.30 to Eric's life, but what about our lives? It's much, much harder You see, our lives are not lived out on the big stage. They're not lived out on in the Olympic arena. And our decision to honor God is not just a one-time decision. In fact, it's a decision that we must choose to make over and over, even hundreds of times a day, usually when no one is watching and there's no medals at stake. But we must remember that this promise is a two-sided promise. We only read one part of it. For those who honor me, I will honor, verse 30, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. In this chapter, in in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we will see two extreme, polar opposite examples of how God responds to men on one condition. Whether we honor God with our actions or whether we despise him with our actions. This principle is not contained just to Samuel or to the Old Testament or just to some distant biblical world. This is how the universe operates. It's hard to believe that, isn't it? It's hard to remember that this is how God runs his world because so often we don't see how it turns out. Sometimes those who honor God win gold medals. Sometimes. But they're far more likely to die in the concentration camps or to be stoned like Stephen or to be sued or fined or to be crucified. Friends, we need to get the two examples of 1 Samuel chapter 2, of Eli and his wicked sons who despised God, and of Samuel and his family who honored God. We need these examples burned into our hearts so that we would not sin against God. God's word is precious, so what I would like to do is read this entire text. And uh, we will start in verse 12, 1 Samuel 2, verse 12, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Follow along with me. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. 
They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the, first, and if the man said to him, Let them first burn the fat, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it to me now. If not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed in a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she has asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. And then indeed the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil, de- your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is not good. It is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and favor with the Lord and also with men. Verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your fathers should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever." 
The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out and grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I, and I will build him a secure, sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priests' place, that I might eat a morsel of bread." This is God's word given to us for our good and for our benefit. Let's pray and ask that God would bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Father, there's a great distance between our hearts and your words. So we pray that you would help us to understand them. That you would help us to pay attention to what you have said to us. And that we would respond in obedience. I pray, Father, that tonight my words would fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. We need you to work. We need you to speak. We need to hear from you. So, Father, would you take more of your kingdom in our hearts tonight, I pray, and be honored among us because of what happens tonight. In your name, amen. It can be difficult to read this much text, can it? It can be difficult talking about three-pronged forks and sacrifices and all the different things that are going on. And it can be difficult to trace the, the flow of the story. But there's a lot of beauty here, and so I want to encourage you to hang in there. I, in order to understand the main point of this text, the author has helped us quite a bit. He's given us some really clear organization, and to see the main point of the text, we need to pay attention to how he has structured this. One of the key things to notice is there is a very deliberate comparison between the two households. On the one hand, there is Eli and his wicked household, his wicked sons, and on the other side, you have Samuel's righteous household. And so let's look at each of these in turn. Let's first think about Eli's wicked household. Now, an incredibly large portion of this text is given to describing the wickedness of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and Eli's failure as a leader. There's two, two sides of this failure. The author actually goes out of his way and gives us incredibly explicit detail about their treachery. Right away in verse 12, right? He comes right out and states that these were worthless men. They did not know the Lord in verse 12. Okay, now, worthless men, if you've read much in the Old Testament, this is Bible talk for thug, right? These are thugs. And guess what? These are the priests in Israel. These are the priests. Though they were ordained by God to serve the people of Israel and to assist them in their sacrificial activities, they had worked out a system of organized, uh, repeating extortion. So hopefully you're able to follow along. But what would happen was when a worshiper would come into the temple, they would cook part of their offering and then enjoy part of that as a family meal after their time of worship. Now, the law of Moses stipulated that the priest 
could have a portion of the sacrifice, but Hophni and Phinehas had gone way beyond that and had twisted it entirely. They actually had a guy, right? They had a guy whose job was to go around and take more meat. Now, this is one of the interesting themes in the book of Samuel. The theme of those who are hungry and those who are full. And we see this picture early on. We'll see that uh, Eli, when he dies, he dies and he is fat, right? It's this picture of the people are starving and, they have, and the priests have gorged themselves on the sacrifice of the people. But even if the people reminded them, they say, hey, look, you know, just as the text said, that they weren't supposed to take the meat before it was cooked and presented to the Lord. So their thugs would just threaten and say, okay, fine, we'll take it from you by force. They would, they would steal it. Just think about the contempt that these men are showing the people they were supposed to minister to. And think about the contempt they were showing Yahweh, whom they were supposed to worship. That wasn't all. Verse 22 tells us that they would commit sexual sins in the tabernacle. And this was no secret. This is open news. Eli would hear about it from all the people, about the women that they were sleeping with in the tabernacle. This is despicable behavior. And though Hophni and Phinehas are clearly the worst of the worst, Eli is in trouble too. Verses 22 through 25 show Eli, yeah, he sort of, kind of tried to rebuke his sons, but it wasn't enough. Verse 29 shows that God actually holds Eli responsible for failing to remove them from leadership, for allowing them to actively abuse the priesthood. And verse 29 says that, Eli is condemned for regarding their honor above the Lord's. The text seems to show Eli is this decent guy, but one who failed in his responsibility of spiritual leadership and rebuking and failing to govern his sons. Now friends, this should remind us, just as we discussed last week, all right, this may not feel that relevant to us, right? These aren't our pastors. This isn't our time. This isn't our nation but this should remind us of the bleak spiritual condition of Israel. We saw last week how Hannah's barren womb was not just one woman's barren womb, but it was a parable for all of the spiritual barrenness in Israel. And here we see again that Israel's spiritual leaders are unconverted, perverted, cowardly thugs. It's hard for us to really feel the weight of the spiritual darkness that hung over Israel. What hope is there here for revival? What, what, what good can happen with these clowns in charge? How can Israel be a blessing to other nations when its own leaders wickedly satisfy their own appetites within the tabernacle itself? How in the world could God turn anything good out of this tragedy? But as we have been seeing, and as we will see many times ahead, that God likes to come into the game when his team is down. He likes to come in and, and, and display his power when circumstances seem hopeless. 
All throughout this text, we should notice glimmers of hope. That's one of the reasons I wanted to read all of it. The author is very clearly and intentionally leaving behind for us little glimmers of hope. And we'll get to those in a moment, but let's turn now and think about the household of Hannah and Samuel. And think about Samuel's righteous household. Now remember that I told you, the main, one of the main things that's happening here is this comparing and contrasting of the two households. So, so check this out. While the author goes through and details the spiritual and moral catastrophe of Eli's family, we see all these short little notes spread all throughout the story about Samuel. We could call these seeds of hope. I want you to follow on. Look down in your text. I'm going to try to walk through these really quickly and try to just locate them with perhaps your finger. In verse 11, right, at the very beginning of this, we see little Samuel who is in the midst of all these wicked imbeciles serving the Lord. And then in verses 12 through 17, we see of the abuses of the offering by Eli's sons. But then in verse 18 through 21, we see Samuel serving again, right? And then in verses 22 through 25, we hear about the sexual sins that the priests would commit. But then in verse 26, Samuel's growing. Look at verse 26. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Does that sound familiar? That's almost exactly how Luke described another little, bo- a little boy that was born into a world of darkness from nowhere. Luke 2.52 says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. But then in verses 27 through 36, this is where the judgment for Eli's wickedness in his family, this is when it comes down. And then in verse, chapter 3, verse 1, what do we see again? Samuel's ministering and he is in the presence of Eli. The author is intentionally drawing our attention to the fact that Yahweh is at work. He's providing new leadership for his people, a leader who will serve the Lord faithfully. The text is whispering every couple verses, don't forget about Samuel. I know it looks hopeless now, but God's got a plan. And this is, more, this is not just a lesson in leadership. This is a story of how God accomplishes his purposes for all of his people. And as we have been seeing, this is why we backed up and reviewed from Genesis. This is not just about Israel. This is how we get Christ. Is all the way through this ministry. God was at work. Don't forget about Samuel. Do you see how Samuel and Eli's families are contrasted? You have wicked religious leaders in a place of prominence. That sounds like another group of folks we'll see in Jesus' day. And then here you have humble, righteous, a humble, righteous family from nowhere. What's God going to do? What's God going to do? Well, we don't have to wait very long to see what God's going to do because now we come to God's rejection of Eli's household. In verses 27 through 34, we get a detailed description of God's rejection of Eli and his whole household. Look down at verse 30 again. We'll read this several times. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. That's priesthood language. But now, declares the Lord, 
far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. You see, God had promised that he would bless his people. But God had a specific promise for the priesthood, for Aaron's family. God had specifically promised that he would bless Aaron's household. The household of Aaron were to be the priests who served before the Lord. Those who would serve as intercessors between a holy God and then God's sinful people. But here, God revokes this blessing. Why? Because they had failed to keep covenant with God. They had failed to honor God. And he tells Eli that he's going to be opposed to his family forever. Can you imagine getting that sort of news? That God is going to be opposed to you and your family forever. Friends, that's what sin does. But we'll come to that in a moment. Eli is told in verse 31, I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. And then down in verse 33, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword. And let's jump ahead in the story and let me just go ahead and tell you, that's exactly what happened. It didn't happen that day. It took a long time for this to come to pass. But we'll see this promise fulfilled when we get to chapter 22. When a guy named Doeg, cool name, I think, maybe a good dog name, Doeg, an Edomite, he slaughters every one of Eli's descendants. And where does he do it? In the tabernacle. Except for one man. You remember the prophecy? One man, Abathar, remained alive and he watched and saw the demise of his family. Friends, you can take it to the bank. God is not mocked. We mock him with our sin. He wins. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Let's take heed to this. Let's put aside the folly of our sin. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. God is very good at keeping his word. And there are curses promised for sin. We can't overlook that. We're so used to the beauties of grace that we forget the dangers of sin. Why do we ignore hundreds and hundreds of warnings in the scriptures about the danger of sin? Do you remember? Those who live according to the flesh will what? Die. We must remember, don't think that you're going to get away with your secret sin. Every glance, every YouTube show you watch, uh, Netflix show you watch, every picture you take in, every dollar you spend, every proud word, every covetous thought, sin only brings destruction. Always. We don't escape that. Don't you see that sin's destroying but so don't you see the sin-destroying power of this precious promise that God reminds us in verse 30? Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. We have a, in this promise in verse 30, we have a reason to obey and a reason not to disobey. I've been, I just I feel like I should give a word of personal testimony. I've been meditating on this third of a verse for the, since last Thursday. 
And I cannot tell you how much safety I've enjoyed. I don't know how else to say it. I cannot tell you how many times I have had sin before me and I remembered (laughs) he honors those who honor him. And it kills the desire for sin. But as we see the rejection of Eli's house, we also see the blessing of Elkanah and Hannah's house in this text. Let's think about the honoring of of Hannah's house. So we're talking about the rejection of Eli's house. So now let's think about how God honors Hannah. I want to point this out in just a couple ways. We could do this for a long time, but we won't. All throughout the text, we see Samuel growing, okay? This is not just a growth chart. There's a theological point that I think the author is making here. All throughout the text, we see Samuel growing and flourishing. One of my favorite spots to see this is is in verse 21. Look down at this. We'll see two things here. The end of verse 21, the last sentence says, The boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. The very next verse, Now Eli was old. Right? Samuel's growing, Eli's dying. Right, we have this picture of Hannah's house being blessed. <laughs> God is on the move. The old regime is dying out and God's putting his guy in office. But look back at the beginning of verse 21. Just as the sons of Eli were worthless men who did not know the Lord, the text says, the Lord visited Hannah. He visited her. Now we know what that means in the text, but it also is clear that God drew near to her. He draws near to those who honor him. The woman who was once barren, right? She's gone on. This is more, she's had more than just Samuel. Did you catch that in the text? Remember last week we had a barren woman pleading for a child and then God gave her Samuel. And now this week, look, she bore three sons and two daughters. It's been a busy week. Do you remember Hannah's prayer? I told you we're going to go back to this probably every week. Look over, flip over, and it's chapter 2, verse, verse 5. You don't have to go far. What did Hannah say? The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. We get this picture of the great reversal. God takes the barren and he fills her home with children. And the one who has children to her, her children are taken away. And just an, interesting, just an interesting thing to note, Hannah said the barren woman is born seven, but she only has six. Maybe she's pointing to some reality greater than herself. She's looking ahead. This is a bigger reality than just one woman. But look over at, uh, while we're here, look at chapter 2, verse 6. We see another uh, another promise from this song that is fulfilled in this chapter. In verse 6 it says, the Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. Is this not exactly what he has promised to do to Eli's household? This is exactly what he told them he would do. Now there are other interesting textual markers all throughout this that that highlight the way that God blesses the righteous family of Elkanah. But I think that's enough for us here. I think I've I think we've seen enough of it to recognize a key truth. God honors those who honor him, and he sets himself against those who dishonor or despise him. Friends, we can be assured, 1 Samuel teaches us, God powerfully works, not for everyone, 
for the righteous. And God works powerfully against the wicked. He works powerfully for the righteous, and God works powerfully against the wicked. (laughs) What side of that equation do you want to be on, friends? My dear brothers and sisters, let us remember this as we consider the constant, ever-present danger of indwelling sin that still remains in our hearts. What Christian would ever give way to temptation when this truth is in front of his heart? I'm serious. Try this this week. Get this into your heart. Do we not want God's power and favor to be employed in our favor? Or do we want him against us? Do you want God against you? What temptation can maintain its power when we pause to read the fine print? Those who despise me will be disdained. That's the fine print of all temptation. Let this verse whisper in your ear before you click. Let this verse whisper in your ear before you speak, before you watch, before you buy, before you think. Do we not remember what we learned back in James chapter 4? But God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We said it a few weeks ago. Friends, we must remember The grace of God makes sinners safe, but grace does not make sin safe. Let's run. Let's flee off all the sin that entangles us and run with endurance. What new freedom would you enjoy if whenever, if whatever sin has the strongest pull on your heart right now, I prayed this this afternoon, we all have sin pulling and polluting our hearts right now. If whatever the biggest one that's going on in your life right now, whatever sin looks the best to you, What freedom would you enjoy if you stared that sin in the face and then anchored your heart in the promise that those who honor me I will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed? Consider this. Let's call this the fixed principle of God's kingdom. But there's another major part of this story that we don't want to miss, and that's the coming priest. The coming priest. Oh, this is fun. In the midst of this dark passage, God gives his people hope with these words. Can we, why does God do this? Why does God intervene in our sin and the darkness that we bring on himself? Why does he intervene and give us good things? Right? They deserved death. We deserve death and God intervenes. Don't, don't, miss these, don't miss these rays of grace. Don't get bored by it. This is God's incredible grace. In the midst of this dark passage, God gives his people hope in verse 35. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Though the tabernacle in Israel, though Israel's spiritual leadership is employed by wicked, stupid, perverted priests who don't even know God, it's not going to always be like that. God is on the move. God promises. He promises. He will raise up another priest. 
a faithful one who will minister before the Lord forever. Now, this isn't Samuel. Okay? This isn't Samuel. Samuel was a prophet. He was not a priest. The prophesied priest that's mentioned here in verse 36 is going to be realized later on in the book by a man named Zadok, who served in the temple under Solomon. Now, Zadok would be faithful to actively fulfill the duties of the priests, and we actually have three of them mentioned here. If Look back in verse 28. Let's look at this for a moment. Verse 28, the text mentions here three specific duties of the priest. Okay, find them, with your, find them with your eyes. Number one, go up to the altar. You see it? Number two, burn incense. And number three, wear an ephod. Wear a specific type of garment before the Lord. Now let's think about what, what Zadok would eventually, what he would eventually do. Okay, in going, the first thing they do is they would go up to the altar. Now, this is referring to making blood sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. Okay, the second thing that he would eventually do was to burn incense in this reminds us in part of the ministry of intercession that that a priest would have between sinful people and a holy God. And then the third thing they would do is to wear this highly symbolic garment. The priest would wear this garment, an ephod that that represented all 12 tribes of Israel. There, There were markings that represented one for each of the tribes of Israel as he ministered in the presence of the Lord. It's as if all the people of God are before the Lord. Now, we should recognize that even though Zadok would be a righteous and faithful high priest, he's coming. But there's one problem. He died. He, he, sure, he was a sinner, and so he died. He himself was imperfect because he could not serve forever, but that's the promise. One who will go in and out before the Lord forever. Guess what's coming? This promise. This is a promise that looks ahead to the coming of Jesus. God's great, one, true, high priest. So let's think about Jesus, the high priest. Jesus didn't go to the altar continually to make sacrifices. Jesus was the Lamb of God. He was the priest and king, and he went to the cross. And became the once for all sacrifice. Jesus didn't burn incense. He sits at the right hand of God interceding for us even now. Jesus didn't wear a priestly garment. But he bore on the redeemed. He bore all the redeemed. He bore our names on his heart. And he has secured our place in glory. Because our names, Isaiah says, are carved upon the palms of his hands. Jesus, the high priest, would eventually come and do what Eli could not do, what Hophni and Phinehas would not do, and what Zadok would not do. Now, let's pause for a moment. And let me ask you, who do you identify with the most in this story? I think for most of us, especially, you know, growing up, for some of us hearing the Bible stories, it's very easy to identify with the heroes of the Bible, right? Even when it's the little guy, 
Right? We, we know, we can figure out who the good guy is, and so we kind of naturally identify with him. I doubt that many of us tonight saw ourselves as Hophni's and Phineas's. We didn't see ourselves as the wicked priests. We probably saw ourselves as the Samuels and the Hannahs. But is that really the case? Is that really true of your life? Are you guilty of insincere worship? Are you guilty of not confronting sin? Parents, how are you doing? Do you let your children persist in rebellion because you're afraid you're going to damage your relationship with them? Or because it's going to hurt their reputation? How often, how many times have you sinned sexually? How often have you honored yourselves above the Lord? You see, the answer is that every single time we sin, we honor ourselves above the Lord. We choose our glory over His. We choose our authority over His. Friends, we have far more in common with Eli and his wicked, perverted sons than we may care to admit. And just as Eli said in, chap- in verse 25, if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Well, we know the answer that Eli couldn't quite get. We may have wickedness to our name, but we also have a great high priest, Jesus Christ. No matter who you think you identify with the most in this story, we have all broken God's law. Far more than we have thought, and it is far more serious than we think. We have all despised God by honoring ourselves above Him. And the only hope, the only hope we have, if we don't want to end up like Hophni and Phinehas, the only hope for us is to repent of our sins, to stop, to change direction, and to place our faith in Christ. Christ died the death that Eli's wicked sons died. Christ died the death that we should have died. He went to the cross so that sinners wouldn't have to die. Just as a lamb died to pay for the sins of the people, the Lamb of God died for us. He didn't have to do this. Don't you see this? He didn't have to do this. His love compelled him. Friends, we have a Savior. We have a great high priest who doesn't want us to run in our sins as we feel like we should, but to run to him in our sins because he intercedes and he is the Lamb. As we close, let's remember the fixed principle of God's kingdom. That those who honor him will be honored by him. And those who despise him by honoring themselves above the Lord through sin will meet the same fate of Eli's wicked sons. But let's also remember one more thing. There's something happening behind the scenes when we obey. God is at work. Wherever God is honored, 
we can be sure that God is working behind the scenes, pouring out his grace and preparing a place of honor for us. That is so crucial for us to remember. That's what compels us in obedience. When we are obeying, no matter what our circumstances are, we can be assured that God is working in a way that we cannot see behind the scenes to prepare good for us. We live in a world of sin where it seems like sin always wins. Where it seems like the wicked prosper and the righteous fade away. We need eyes of faith. Eyes of faith. With eyes of faith, we can be assured that wherever God is being honored, he is powerfully at work. And there's no greater example of this than the little baby born into the darkness of Bethlehem who was and is the light of the world. Church, I am praying and I pray that tonight God would by his spirit work in our hearts that we would leave here with a new hatred of sin. Will God not revive our hearts if we turn from our sins? I'm not talking about the sins of other people. I'm not talking about the sins of some politician or some terrorist. The sins in our own hearts that we harbor. If we turn from those, God will pour out his grace in fresh measure. And we will see what we never dreamed to take place in the life of our church. Let's pray and ask that God would do this. Father, I pray that you would write your word on our hearts. That as sin presents itself before us this week through temptation, that we would remember the precious promise that you honor those who honor you and that we would fear that those who despise you will be lightly esteemed. Make this true in our hearts. Give us grace to obey you. We thank you for Christ who obeyed on our behalf. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may stand and go in peace, church.